Want to know how to get the same cell coverage for up to half the cost? Well, instead of spending a fortune building and maintaining their own cell phone towers, Consumer Cellular just pays to use the same towers as the largest carriers and passes the savings on to you. Pretty smart, huh? Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors. But as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for your time, as always. Coming up straight ahead, we have the very latest on such a sad story that got global, international attention and focus over the last week or so. We'll have, unfortunately, the sad ending to the Titan submersible and five people who met their fates near the wreckage of the Titanic. We'll start with that because the United States Coast Guard and certainly the United States Navy were heavily involved during the past seven days or so. We could not do this program without our presenting sponsor. Thank you, as always, to Attorney John Boson and his team at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. I urge you, especially if you know someone, maybe it's you, you were connected in the past with Camp Lejeune. Remember, there is a time-sensitive date that is coming up to file any claims if you were there and were possibly exposed to toxins. Get in touch with John and his team fighting on behalf of veterans just like you or those that you love. 303-999-9999 or bosonlaw.com. That's bosonlaw.com. We begin this week's American Veterans Show with sound that is sad. Sound that is sad from United States Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger talking about the Titan submersible with five people on board. This morning, an ROV or remote operated vehicle from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. The ROV subsequently found additional debris. In consultation with experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. On behalf of the United States Coast Guard, and the entire Unified Command, I offer my deepest condolences to the families. I can only imagine what this has been like for them, and I hope that this discovery provides some solace during this difficult time. 
Additionally, we've been in close contact with the British and French Consul General to ensure that they are fully apprised and that their concerns are being addressed. The outpouring of support in this highly complex search operation has been robust and immensely appreciated. We are grateful for the rapid mobilization of experts on the undersea search and rescue, and we thank all of the agencies and personnel for their role in the response. We're also incredibly grateful for the full spectrum of international assistance that's been provided. The ROVs will remain on scene and continue to gather information. Again, our most heartfelt condolences go out to the loved ones of the crew. We'll now take questions. John, what other debris have you found? John, what other debris have you found? Can you talk about the delay in reporting the vessel missing and what impact that had on the recovery? This was an incredibly complex case, and we're still working to develop the details for the timeline involved with. Uh, this casualty and uh, the response. And so we'll provide that information. James Matthews from Sky News. John, what other debris have you found? And have you found any trace of any trace? So this is an incredibly complex uh, operating environment on the seafloor over two miles uh, beneath the surface. And so uh, the, the remote operating vehicle has been searching and it is highly capable. Uh, and we've been able to classify uh, parts of the uh, pressure chamber uh, for uh, the Titan submersible. Let me refer to uh, one of my uh, undersea experts here, uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Hankin, to talk about uh, the nature of some of the debris. Uh, thank you, Admiral. So. Essentially, we found uh, five different major pieces of, of debris that uh, told us that it was the uh, remains of the Titan. The initial thing we found was the nose cone, which was outside of the pressure hull. Um, we then found a large debris field. Within that large debris field, uh, we found the, the front end bell of the pressure hull. That was the first indication that um, there was a catastrophic event. Um, shortly thereafter, we found the, a second smaller debris field. Within that debris field, uh, we found the, the other end of the pressure hull, the, the aft end bell, um, which was basically the, comprised the, the totality of that pressure vessel. Um, we continue to map the debris field, and as the Admiral said, we will uh, do the best we can to fully map out what's down there. Can I ask you a question? Admiral, can I ask you a question? It's a very difficult question to ask, but it will be an important one for the families, of course. What are the prospects of recovering the bodies of the missing crew? 
so so the questions was uh, related I'm restating the question from the standpoint of uh, sometimes it's hard to hear the question here uh, what are the prospects for re, uh, recovering uh, crew members and so uh, this is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel and so uh, we'll continue to uh, work and continue to uh, search uh, the area uh, down there, but uh, I, I don't have an answer for uh, prospects at this time. Everyone, 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 that the sub itself collided with the wreckage of Titanic or that instead it might have imploded above the wreckage and then rained down nearby? So uh, the question was, is there any question as to whether or not the sub collided with the Titanic or whether it uh, imploded uh, above and, and debris uh, field created from that? Uh, so the, uh, the, the location of the Titan submersible was in an area that was approximately 1,600 feet uh, from uh, the uh, wreck of the Titanic. Uh, I have uh, an expert here that can that is familiar with that area and can talk about uh, the debris field and, and what uh, the debris field indicates in terms of uh, the where the casualty may have occurred. From late last week, United States Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger. May those on board rest in peace and without trying to be too cheesy or overly dramatic. Someone pointed out that I saw on social media last week, and I think it was pretty poignant. The Titanic took five more victims just in the past seven days or so. Coming up next, the best of the American Veteran Show, a couple of great segments straight ahead. And this is a preview of our next episode that will come to you top to bottom, brand new and live. It is our, of course, annual Independence Day, 4th of July American Veteran Show. That comes up one week from today. We'll also talk about the closing this past week. And this is a big deal that not a lot of people knew about. The closing of the Pueblo Chemical Weapons Depot. They're done. We'll talk about that next week on a brand new edition. Glad you're with us. Enjoy the rest of the program. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show as we continue. You know, it was earlier this year that we did our annual look at remembering the three Apollo 1 astronauts who met death as they were trying to get ready to go into space. And, of course, we remember Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. They have now been officially and now will forever be memorialized at Arlington National Cemetery. It was on January 27, 1967, that America heard this. This is a CBS News special report. This is Mike Wallace at the CBS Newsroom in New York. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. Virgil Gus Grissom, 40 years old, one of the original Mercury astronauts, the first American astronaut to go twice into space. Edward White, 36 years old, the first American to walk in space. 
And rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee, 31 years old, training for his first space flight, Apollo 1, scheduled for February 21st. These three astronauts were aboard their spaceship 10 minutes from a simulated liftoff at Cape Kennedy when the fire hit at about 6.30 tonight. They were inside their spaceship, pressurized, buttoned up inside their spacesuits when the fire hit. A closed-circuit television camera was relaying pictures of the astronauts lying on their backs inside the spacecraft to top the two-stage Saturn I. There was a flash, and that was it, according to a NASA spokesman watching the television screen in the blockhouse a few hundred yards away from launch pad 34. The screen went blank, and he said there was no communication from the astronauts. They died silently and apparently swiftly. Their bodies have been left in the spacecraft, according to the latest information from the Cape, pending an investigation into the disaster. President Johnson tonight mourned the death of the three astronauts. He said they gave their lives in the nation's service. Our brave men in uniform, whether in Vietnam or seeking the frontiers of the future, he said, mourn with all of us the tragic loss of three gallant and dedicated airmen. That from CBS newsman Mike Wallace. Grissom and Chaffee, they are already interred at Arlington. Ed White, he was buried at the Military Academy at West Point. But to this point, as of you know, two weeks ago, there was really nothing there at Arlington. That now has changed. At the height of the Cold War space race, a launch pad fire killed three Apollo astronauts. It was the first tragedy of the American space program. This week, more than half a century later, the accident, the crew of Apollo 1 was honored with a monument at Arlington National Cemetery. Chris Van Cleve reports. Abandoned decades ago, Cape Canaveral's Launch Complex 34 sits in a seemingly somber silence. Largely off-limits to the public, it's where the first American lives were lost, reaching for the stars. Is this hollowed ground? This is. This is hollowed ground because of the tragedy of Apollo 1 and the three lives lost here. Jamie Draper is the director of the Air Force Space and Missile Museum. The incident really shook not only the space program, but America to the core. On January 27, 1967, three weeks before the launch, the crew of Apollo 1 suited up and arrived here for a dress rehearsal inside their command module, 218 feet atop a Saturn 1B rocket. Mission commander Gus Grissom, a veteran of the Mercury and Gemini missions, senior pilot Ed White, the first American to walk in space, and Roger Chaffee, a respected Navy pilot training for his first space flight, orbiting the Earth in the new Apollo capsule. But three hours into the test, disaster. This is a CBS News special report. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. The capsule had been pressurized with pure oxygen. A spark from faulty electrical wiring likely ignited the flash fire. It took five minutes for rescuers to open the hatch. By then, it was too late. So again, with our Just days before the fatal fire, Grissom spoke to CBS News. The possibility of a catastrophic failure bother you at all, sir? No, you sort of have to put that out of your mind. You just plan as best you can to take care of uh, all of these eventualities. And uh, you get a well-trained crew and you go fly. Though the country asked itself whether the moon was worth this human cost, 
the Apollo program pressed on. Less than two years after the Apollo 1 incident, Apollo 7 launched from this complex with all of the lessons learned from Apollo 1 incorporated. And it led to Apollo 8, eventually Apollo 11. Without their sacrifice, the program would not have been reconfigured and we would not have made it to the moon. Go and throttle up. But tragedy struck NASA again in 1986. Obviously a major malfunction. Columbia, Houston, com check. And 2003. Lock the doors. Copy. The 14 lives lost in the space shuttle Challenger and Columbia accidents were honored with memorials at Arlington National Cemetery. But not Apollo 1, even though Grissom and Chaffee were laid to rest there decades earlier. It was a easy visual to see this is missing. Lance Bush runs the Challenger Center, founded by the families of that shuttle accident. In 2015, he and many in the space community started pushing for an Apollo 1 monument at Arlington. If you ask somebody, what's this country's greatest achievements? I mean, uh, I'm certain that walking on the moon is going to be in the top three, but that was built on the shoulders of a lot of people and a lot of sacrifice. And the Apollo 1 crew, it's a re really important story and that can be told there at arlington finally this week 55 years after the accident apollo one story got its missing chapter a new memorial to the crew was dedicated thursday on hand where chaffee's daughter cheryl white's daughter bonnie and grissom's brother lowell well it was very solemn long time coming it's very nice that uh, we could finally get this done this is all so appropriate for all three of the guys, and I'm very, very proud of, of my dad, and I just sort of wanted to have everybody remember, all three. You know, they were family men, but they were professionals. They were daring, and they had fun, you know. Um, they were just, just great people, and I would like to see people really go and look into who they were. In designing the monument, the families had one request a Latin motto carved in stone, ad astra per aspera, a rough road leads to the stars, a message of perseverance that helped carry man to the moon. That from CBS News. And as we wrap up this segment, at the actual ceremony at Arlington. These are the guys who have blazed the trail for the rest of us. And the rest of us is all of us especially now what NASA is doing in the heavens. It's extraordinary how we are reaching out back to the very beginning. And you'll see first light from the new telescope back to the very beginning. The formation of the gases that formed the first galaxy and that's coming in a month. We'll see that. And all of this has been built on the shoulders of the people who have sacrificed. Some in accidents that should have been prevented. Uh, certainly uh, of the three uh, major ones that we observe on the day of remembrance, uh, at the end of January each year, Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia. But the innumerable people that gave their lives in training accidents in preparation uh, for this 
wonderful experience that we have all participated in called America's Space Program. So we honor these three today who were guided by a spirit of discovery and I might say a love of country. Blessings to those family members who remember their loved ones and rest in peace to the Apollo 1 crew. They are also memorialized at what's called the Space Mirror Memorial. That's at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. The hatch from that command module is on display nearby. And as we wrap up, craters both on the moon and the hills of Mars have been named for Grissom, White, and Chaffee. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. For those of us connected with the American Veteran Show, we certainly hope you make us a habit on every Sunday at noon. And don't forget to visit the new and improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. And you can hear past episodes. The podcasts are right there, just a few clicks away. We continue the rest of the program looking at baseball players who have served their country. But what about if you served but you were a spy. More from CBS News. Baseball may just be a sport, but one baseball player may have helped save the world. Mo Berg was an accomplished baseball player for 15 years in the 30s and 40s, but he was also a spy in World War II. Before the CIA, there was an organization called the OSS, and Mo Berg was its star. His life is the focus of a new documentary called The Spy Behind Home Plate, and recently I asked filmmaker Aviva Kempner if Mo Berg was the real-life James Bond. He was in the OSS, and people don't know, but will be is in the film, that the creator of James Bond, Ian Fleming, actually helped while Bill Donovan developed the whole plan for the OSS. It's a couple scenes in the movie. So the whole aspect of the OSS that would put men and women in, safe crackers, Ivy League people, and someone with brain and brawn like Mo Berg, also created in the input by Ian Fleming, who created James Bond. The OSS, by the way, was the precursor to the CIA, and we didn't have a spy system back then. So Moberg was was kind of like something unique. He spoke 10 languages. He had a law degree, charismatic, a baseball player, a perfect cover to travel the world. And he did just that promoting baseball alongside some of the greats like Babe Ruth. You know, the joke was he spoke 10, maybe 12 languages, but couldn't hit in any of them. (laughs) But actually, in the 15 years he played, he hit 243, which is a pretty good utility player. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about Babe Ruth, in 1934, there was a very famous trip of an all-star team, except for Mo, he was an all-star, but it was Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Lefty Gomez, Lou Gehring, Charlie Gehringer, all went to Tokyo under the guise of a goodwill trip, but I think it was really America's last chance to sort of reach out to Japan. And when Mo was there, he did a certain clandestine filming of the Tokyo skyline on, I think, his own volition. But you have to see the film to see if he didn't think he had maybe some others encouraging him to do it. And this was footage used later in the Doolittle Raid. 
And so that footage was used by the U.S. military at some point. Well, to scope out, you know, exactly what the skyline, skyline looked like. And they also asked for footage because Lefty Gomez and Jimmy Fox were also taking footage. So uh, the trip may, in a way, help prepare for that. Well, that's the thing is I think that there are a lot of baseball Hall of Famers that have were rightly credited with their contributions to World War II. But I would say that Mo Berg's contributions, as clandestine as they were, may have been as, if not more, impactful. Well, his role was as a, a spy for nuclear espionage. We were terrified. America was terrified in the Allies. The Germans had the capability to also create a nuclear bomb. We already had started the Manhattan Project, but we didn't know this outstanding physicist who would have had the brains and knowledge to do it, named Heisenberg. Mo was sent on this uh, clandestine mission to go hear him talk to see and also talk to him after uh, his lecture to see if there was any way the Germans were creating the nuclear bomb because you know it was a race until the end although the final irony was that the German physicists who knew most about how to create a bomb were Jewish and already, like Einstein, already had left Germany. But we still didn't know for sure. And Mo was the one that, that really secured the knowledge and, you know, sort of did the spying to find out what Heisenberg knew, knew by going to Zurich, pretending he was uh, a Swiss student and he had a cyanide in one pocket and a gun in another pocket. Werner Heisenberg, uh, the pioneer of quantum mechanics, right. might have been one of the few men in the world that could have taken that fission technology and created a, an atomic bomb. And it was really up to Mo to determine whether or not that was possible. So you had to get in there, pretend to be someone else, be able to speak another language, and have the knowledge to identify the charts as whether or not he was telling the truth, whether or not the Germans were even close to an right. A-bomb. And he had briefed himself. I mean, he had the type of brain that could absorb everything from physics to Sanskrit. So he, he was exactly the right person at the right time for us to use. You tell stories that are the untold stories, more or less, of Jewish heroes right. and their contribution to history. Why did Moberg's story gather your attention as, as great as it did? Well, I grew up in Detroit always hearing about Hank Greenberg. He was my father's hero. And the day I, uh, and hearing about how he almost broke Bruce's record and didn't play baseball in Yom Kippur. And the day Hank died, I knew I had to do the film on Hank Greenberg. Mo presented himself another way. Uh, someone who had been a minor funder of my other films said to me one day, Aviva, do a film about Sid Luckman, who was the Jewish football player. And I said, Bill, I don't like football. And he says, what about Barney Ross? And I said, uh, I, I hate boxing more, a Jewish boxer. But when he said, Mo Berg, I love baseball. And I said, I've got to do it. Here we combine, you know, again, the golden age of baseball, which I'm fixated on. Uh, someone who used his cleverness and his wit and also his knowledge of languages to spy on the Germans. And I don't think people know enough about the Manhattan Project because it was so secret, but sort of the spies that went along with it. And it's just great to be able to tell the story of Mo Berg, who sacrificed not only his life, but also his professional baseball coaching career to go off and spy for us.
sounds like a great story until you actually have to go in there and do the research. And now you're talking about someone that passed away 50 years ago, didn't leave any children behind. In the 30s and 40s, any kind of documentation for his would have been burned up, erased, eliminated. And on top of that, he was literally a spy. So how do you do the research? How difficult was it to research this? Well, I benefited from three things. One is the fact that 30 years ago, two filmmakers, Neil Goldstein and Jerry Feldman, were trying to make a film on Mo and film people like Don DiMaggio, people Mo played with, and like William Colby, people who were in the OSS or spied with them. And I was able to process those interviews and use them in the film. Second of all, the OSS documents have been declassified, so they're more accessible. But third of all, even though Mo didn't marry his siblings, um, kept a lot of his documents, and between the Columbia Law Library, Princeton Library, New York Public Library, Cooperstown, his cousin Erwin Berg, I assure you, there's a lot more pictures in libraries. Um, there's so many scenes in the film that show him at different times, not so much talking, but him in certain places, and he's always sort of like the chameleon in the back. Huh. And uh, I think that's a lot what Mo was. He was sort of observing the scene and then figuring out what could be done cleverly to get to the next step. And this was a time when anti-Semitism was rampant. He was one of the first Jewish people to actually uh, uh, participate in an Ivy League school, as a matter of fact. Um, but his- that's actually where he faced the anti-Semitism. At Princeton, there was this whole thing about Jews were called Hebrews, couldn't uh, participate in the dining clubs. Although since he was a star in the baseball team, they did let him be there, but they wouldn't let others there. In a way, Mo did not face the anti-Semitism that I saw evident in making the Hank Greenberg film, because every time Hank went up to bat, there was someone on the opposing team or in the stands yelling at him. But still, Mo had a very restrictive time at Princeton because he was Jewish. Do you think that his motives were driven by his love for his heritage or his love for his country? I think Mo was, um, I think Mo's motive to spy for the U.S. was both based on the fact of what he knew Nazism was about and how especially it affected his people. But most of all, it was because he was a proud American. He was the son of immigrants. And by the way, we talk about immigrants should be let in this country. Do you know who made the best spies during World War II for us? The ones who knew the languages of Europe of course. or, of course, Asia. The ones who knew the customs, the clothing. You know, I, I just really... I realized in making this film how important immigrants are to, God forbid, you know, right now we worry about the nuclear mm. power of North, North Korea, of the Middle East, of, of Russia. Who are the spies now? Well, the, uh, the documentary is called The Spy Behind Home Plate. Uh, filmmaker Aviva Kempner, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. And it's open now in the greater New York area as of this weekend. And if you want to find out where else in the country it is, you can go to spybehindhomeplate.org. Interesting story from CBS News. We'll wrap up the program with, again, a look at those baseball players who put their young lives to the side as far as their baseball careers because they served their country. Coming up, you're going to hear from one of my all-time baseball heroes, and I got to meet him in person once. Colonel Jerry Coleman, United States Marine Corps, both in World War II and in Korea. We'll talk about that coming up next as we wrap up the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. 
We wrap up the American Veterans Show with a couple more pieces on Major League Baseball players that paused their career during World War II. And perhaps no one epitomizes an athlete who put things on hold when his country needed him most. That man, Ted Williams, he had just won the Triple Crown in 1942. He enrolled in Naval Flight School in November. The great hitter soon developed into a great pilot. And perhaps surprisingly, the ornery star took to the military life like a natural. The truth is he was a very structured person and, in fact, thrived on being structured. He never had a problem with anybody over him, never had a problem with an officer. Ted came there to Chapel Hill, and we were all standing around watching it to pre-flight. And he just electrified everything he did. Coordination, you know, is, is important in flying. you got to get the feel of the airplane, and he had that damn cold. Williams spent three years in the service, eventually becoming a flight school instructor. By the time he returned to the Red Sox in 1946, he was a more mature 27 years old. And the new, friendlier Ted Williams was a hit with the Boston press and fans alike. After the season, Williams was awarded his first MVP. And in the years to come would win another, as well as a second Triple Crown and four more batting titles. Williams remained comfortable, though, in the batter's box winning his second MVP award in 1949. But soon his career was again interrupted by war, as the U.S. entered the conflict in Korea. A bunch of time had passed since World War II, and Ted Williams hadn't flown one plane since he left the service. And now they're called to fly jets that, that none of them knew how to fly. After spending nearly the entire 1952 season retraining in flight school, Williams landed for duty in Korea in February 1953. Williams began flying combat missions just after his arrival. And in one of his first runs, his plane found enemy fire. So I'm up about 18,000 feet now, and I felt like any minute I'm going to have to bail out of this son of a bitch. So all of a sudden, this plane right behind me, little Lieutenant Hawkins, young kid, he led me back to the field, and in the meantime, he's calling in, telling that, you know, he has a plane with him that's smoking. All the Marines are in the air. <laughs> Big explosion in the plane. And all this fire and smoke was underneath me, see? I didn't have my brakes, didn't have my wheels down. And I had nothing to slow me down. All I'm thinking about is getting on the deck. And I never will forget, as I was coming in, I'm on fire. 30 feet of fire going up behind my ass, see? And I hit the runway, and I skidded one mile up the runway. I was really coming in fast. And I'm saying to myself, when is this dirty son of a bitch going to stop? That's all I said. You, when is this dirty son of a bitch? And if I ever prayed in my life, the only goddamn thing I said, well, there's a goddamn Christ. It's the time old Teddy Ballgame needs you. But he landed on the stomach of the plane. Having completed serving his country for the second time in the Marine Air Corps, Ted Williams once again prepares to return to play baseball. 
better understand that your future address is Fenway Park. Is that correct? Well, as of now, that's where I'm scheduled to go, Colonel. I uh, plan on being up there tomorrow, and uh, needless to say, I'm I'm anxious to see if I can still hit that from PBS. And as we wrap up with our look at these heroes, baseball players, but great American patriots, first. We talk about one of my heroes, the longtime San Diego Padres broadcaster Jerry Coleman. Had a chance to meet him one time, and it was just outstanding. Called him Colonel because he was. Jerry Coleman would manage the San Diego Padres for one year. He was a broadcaster. They wanted him back on the field to maybe see if they could turn things around. He couldn't, so he goes back up to the broadcast booth but he was an mvp in the world series a star second baseman for the new york yankees jerry coleman passed away several years ago but what a patriot no i was dumb enough to think i'd give up these two years and be right back where i was i never came back to what i was which doesn't bother me in the least i'll be very honest with you but basically i was always proud to be a marine naval aviator and uh, frankly Uh, It never entered my mind to think that I wasn't going to be as good as I was before. I found out later that I wasn't as good as I was before. But uh, those are the kinds of things. I mean, you you play baseball against your country. It's not a contest. Your country comes first, period. John, you actually put up good numbers with uh, Chicago when you you came out of the war. True. Um, In terms of the opportunities presented to you. Obviously, baseball, Major League Baseball, was just integrating at that point in time. Did a door just not open for you? Not really. Uh, I'm trying to think back during that time when Jackie went in. It, it, was, it was hard, and everybody was asking whether you think Jackie would make it. I said, sure, I think he's going to make it because Jackie, could, he could take the pressure. He could withstand the pressure, and he could... He could do a lot of things. And uh, I think if I had the uh, same opportunity to do, I'd do the same as Jackie did. I would get angry, but I would turn up the cheek and go ahead on and then not try to uh, intimidate anybody or cause trouble. Because that was a no-no. When Ricky hired him, he said, Jackie, you have to do and say no a lot of things. And he did. And I would do the same thing. Yeah, I haven't analyzed how the Bible what went on. That was life. I understood, like I said, I understood where life was going, and I accepted it. And today, it has changed a lot, but I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. Hope you've enjoyed. Over the past couple of episodes, last week, Hollywood stars that have served their country, and this week, with baseball stars that put their careers on hold for both World War II and Korea, and how about Jerry Coleman and Ted Williams? Ted Williams, the more maybe recognizable name, but both of those incredible baseball players not only served in World War II, but Korea as well. Hope you've enjoyed that. And we wrap up the program. The United Launch Alliance has a new Atlas. Let's take a listen. Generating a combined liftoff thrust of 1.5 million pounds, the RD-180 engine and two solid rocket boosters ignite to start ULA's Atlas V rocket on its trip to orbit. Shortly after liftoff, Atlas begins a pitchover to attain the proper flight path while minimizing the dynamic pressure the rocket experiences during flight. Then, Atlas V reaches Mach 1 at the speed of sound. 
Within the next two minutes of first stage flight, the Atlas V rocket will more than triple its velocity, following jettison of the two Gem 63 solid rocket boosters. Fighting against the force of gravity, the nearly one million pound rocket depletes the majority of its propellant. The main engine then shuts down, followed by release of the booster stage. The rocket now weighs a little more than 7% of what it did at liftoff. To deliver Sibir's GO6 to orbit, Centaur will perform three engine burns. Fueled by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, the first burn takes the spacecraft orbital, reaching a LEO parking orbit. Then, once the rocket is climbed above the densest part of Earth's atmosphere, the payload fairing is jettisoned. After the first main engine cutoff, Centaur coasts around to the destination argument, or celestial longitude. The second burn then kicks the trajectory onto a geosynchronous transfer orbit with a maximum altitude in the geo belt. Following a multi-hour coast, Centaur comes alive for a final burn as it prepares to release the Sibir spacecraft into a highly customized, enhanced, high-energy GTO orbit. Nearing end of mission, Centaur executes a guidance-commanded shutdown to complete the final burn, a capability which ensures precise orbit injection. More than three hours after liftoff, Centaur releases the sixth Sibir's Geo satellite for the United States Space Force, providing early missile warning. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100. And use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.